Every evening of the final week before the cross, Jesus walked back over the Mount of Olives to stay in Bethany. Each morning, he retraced his steps, returning to Jerusalem. He walked up until the Temple Mount to teach and to debate the Jewish religious experts. If you went today to the very same spot of Mount of Olives, you could walk down that same path that Jesus took, where he debated the Jewish religious experts. This is a picture of the Mount of Olives today. It's changed quite a bit. You notice all the little blocks on the those are graves, the thousands of graves on the Mount of Olives today. But you could take that same path today to the temple area. It wouldn't be hard to picture the city filled with pilgrims for the Passover. Each day as he arrived in Jerusalem, he was challenged to a debate with the religious leaders. I call them the religious mafia or the religious snobs. These debates took place in front of thousands of people who had come for the Passover and gathered in Jerusalem. Listen to this parable as I read it to you from Matthew. <clears throat> this is from the New Living Testament. They titled it The Parable of the Evil Farmers. Now listen to another story. A certain landowner planted a vineyard, built a wall around it, dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice, and built a lookout tower. Then he leased the vineyard to the tenant farmers and moved to another country. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers grabbed his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. So the landowner sent a larger group of his servants to collect for him, but the results were the same. Finally, the owner sent his son, thinking, surely they will respect my son. But when the tenant farmers saw his son coming, they said to one another, here comes the heir to the estate. Come on, let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they grabbed him, dragging him out of the vineyard, and murdered them. When the owner of the vineyard returns, Jesus asks, what do you think he will do to those farmers? He was speaking to the religious leaders. The religious leaders replied, he will put the wicked man to a horrible death and lease the vineyard to others who will give him his share of the crop after each harvest. Then Jesus asked them, didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation that will produce the proper fruit. Anyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone that falls on When the leading priests and Pharisees heard this parable, they realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked wicked farmers. They wanted to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowds who considered Jesus to be a prophet. May God bless the reading of his holy scripture. 
This parable is obviously an allegory. Each character in the story represents someone real. It says the Jewish leaders realized that Jesus was talking about them. But the parable itself is fairly simple. The landowner refers to God. The vineyard represents the nation of Israel. All the Jewish people were familiar with Isaiah 5, where it stated that God established a vineyard to represent the nation of Israel. The tenants represented the religious leaders. The servants were the Old Testament prophets. God sent dozens of Old Testament prophets to warn the Israelites of their sins. They didn't treat them very well, and in many cases they actually killed them. The Son, of course, is Jesus. He represents Jesus Christ. The Bible says Christ came to those which was his own, meaning the Jewish people, but his own did not receive him. The new tenants represent us and the church. Now, we tend to study parables of Jesus from a human standpoint. We don't look at it from God's standpoint. You can see this tendency in how we name the prophet, uh, the parables in the Bible. None of them originally had names, but as new translations came along, people applied names to the parables. You've heard of the parable, of course, of the prodigal son, but when you look at it from God's viewpoint, maybe it should have been titled the parable of the forgiving father. A few weeks ago, I was studying a parable about how workers in a vineyard all of them work a different amount of hours, but the landowner paid them the same amount of money. You might call this, uh, it was uh, titled in a lot of the Bibles as uh, the, the wicked workers or the, the unfaithful workers in the vineyard. You might title it, though, the parable of the generous boss. John used par- Jesus used parables to show us what God is like. If you have an NIV translation, the parable I read today has the title of the parable of the tenants. When you look at it from God's perspective, we should call it the parable of the patient landowner. In this story, Jesus teaches us four foundational truths about the character of God. When we look at these, and once we uncover them, we'll see that there's a lesson that we can learn and that we can use in our own life. First of all, the first characteristic of God is that he is the owner. Like the owner in the parable, God owns everything. God is the creator. He owns all of planet Earth and everything beyond The psalmist proclaims the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The tenants didn't own the vineyard. The owner placed them there, expecting to receive grapes at the end of the harvest. He didn't demand all the grapes. He just demanded his portion of it that it would do for him. But the tenants rejected the owner's owner's request and acted like they owned the the vineyard. 
what this is showing us is this essence of sin is declaring independence from your Creator. If you refuse to acknowledge God's ownership of you, you are sinning. The essence of sin is saying, I don't need God. I'm the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. Growing up in the South, most of us have heard of the term sharecroppers. Sharecroppers were families that worked land that didn't own that. They didn't own. They plowed the landowner's land. They planted the landowner's seed. They harvested the landowner's crop. And because of their hard work, they kept some of the food they produced and gave the rest to the landowner. Well, in a real sense, each one of us is a sharecropper for the Lord. We don't own anything. We just manage a part of God's creation. But sometimes we do the same thing as the wicked tenants did. We begin to believe that we own the vineyard. I wonder how our Heavenly Father feels on some Sundays when we walk out of church and we step into our nice car and we say, Mine. Or we drive home and walk in our house and we say, Mine. Or later in the day, we go on the computer and check our bank account and say, Mine. You know, it's not. It's not ours. Every good thing we have is a gift from God. Everything in this world is temporary except for the Word of God and people's souls. It's not ours. It's just temporary. Secondly, God is patient. The owner of the vineyard sent a messenger to collect what was due him but they beat him up and threw him out of the vineyard. The owner sent another messenger, and they stoned him and threw him out. He sent another messenger, and they killed him, murdered him, and threw him out. They, he, no matter how many he sent, they did the same thing. So what do we learn from this as far as God is concerned? He is patient with us. <coughs> Imagine you are a landowner. Maybe you own some apartments and you send a worker to go collect the rent. And the renters say, this apartment's mine. I'm not paying you a thing. And they beat up your worker. That may be the way God feels about us sometimes when we claim ownership of what really is his. This parable is really about each one of us God has prepared a vineyard for us to manage. That job you have, the car I mentioned, the house I mentioned, the bank account you have, it didn't come just because of your talent and your good looks. God put you there. He gave you that to manage. God is the creator and he owns it all. He's coming today And he demands a return. He doesn't demand 90% of what you have. He doesn't demand 50% of what you have. He says 10% is a good start. But that's not what he's really after. He's really after you. That's what God wants, is you. 
He's reaching out in love. And he sent you lots of messages. God sends us messages all the time, trying to get us to listen to what he's telling us and what he wants you to do. We have a worldwide web filled with millions of Bible studies, Christian radio and television. We have the Bible. We have this church and all the activities that go on that sends us messages of what we should be doing and how we should relate to God. They remind us all around us. God is so patient that even if we have rejected him a dozen times, he still sends messages. We reject him a hundred times, a thousand times. He's going to continue to reach out to us, hoping that we will respond to his loving message. In the 19th century, before radio and television, people in America found entertainment by listening to public speakers. They called them orators. One of the most famous ones was a gifted atheist by the name of Robert Ingersoll. He traveled around the country delivering messages on the foolishness of believing in God. He often concluded his speech with a dramatic challenge. He would shake his fist to heaven and say, If there's a God, I dare him to strike me dead in ten seconds. Then he slowly counted down. Ten, nine, eight. Women fainted. God-fearing people rushed to the exit, thinking that God was going to probably send a fireball to take care of him. But at the end of his count, he would say, Now, how can you believe in God? One and one visit he made in a small Midwestern town, a godly woman laughed out loud and said, Mr. Ingersoll, do you think you can exhaust God's patience in ten seconds? He's been patient with you for all your life. And he's patient with us all our lives. Not ten seconds, but all the years that we live. You can't exhaust God's patience. He is patient with us. Thirdly, God is love. In the parable, after the owner had sent all his servants and they had been rejected and abused, he takes an astonishing step. He sends his son. He thinks uh, that they would accept his son. In Luke's version of the parable, Jesus called him the beloved son. In Mark's version, they called him the only son. He hoped the tenants would respect him, and instead, what did they do? They killed him. This parable not only highlights the love of God, it also reveals the utter wickedness of the human heart. The tenants of the vineyard didn't kill the man, the son, out of an emotional response. They planned it. They knew what they wanted to do. They thought if they killed the son that they could inherit the vineyard. So what is God's offer to us? He wants you to acknowledge his ownership of everything. He wants you. He wants to have a loving relationship with you. I was reading my Bible the other day, and I came across a verse, and I 
realize it's probably the most well-known, important, most quoted statement about God found in the Bible. For those reasons, I think people sometimes don't think about the depth of it, kind of like the Lord's Prayer. We say it so often that sometimes we don't think about the depth of it. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. How about saying that with me, everybody? For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Can you really comprehend what that's saying to you? There's only one God. And He only has one Son. And He's willing to send that one Son to us to help reconcile the differences between us and God. So what do we do? Do we run out and fall at His feet and surrender? No, we did like the wicked workers in the vineyard. Through our sin, we caused Him to have to go to the cross. But you know, that's what's so amazing about God's love. I'm a sinner by nature. I'm a sinner by choice. But God still loves me. He loves every one of us despite our sin. There's a great little chorus called, It Was Before. It says, It wasn't after I was worthy that He saved me. We never have to seek His grace as a reward. It wasn't after I obeyed Him that He loved me. It wasn't after I had changed. It was before. How can you resist that kind of love? In the early 1960s, Time magazine was really having a lot of trouble with subscriptions. They decided to repeat a practice they had of sending out letters to a, a database asking people to subscribe to their magazine. It was quite expensive. took a lot of human labor to do it. Well, about that time, IBM was developing something called a computer. And they made a proposal to Time Magazine to let them do this mailing for them. They would use the database, produce the letter, and fold it and insert it into the envelope, put it into the mail system without ever touching human hands. The huge computer was installed with much fanfare and anticipation. However, still the case with computers, glitches do happen. There was a rancher, a poor rancher in Wyoming, who received 12,634 letters. <laughs> All appealing to him to take a subscription. Well, this poor farmer, a rancher, he hardly ever got any mail. So he started opening the bags of letters, and he read a few dozen of them. Finally said, I give up. And he sent a $6 check for subscription to the, to, the, to the Time magazine. That's the kind of persuasion that's hard to resist. And that's what God tries to do to us. He sends us messengers all the time. It should be hard to resist. 
God's love for you is so powerful that it is hard to resist. Lastly, God is just. After telling the story, Jesus asked the Jewish mafia what the owner should do to those wicked tenants who killed his son. <clears throat> In one translation, the NIV, I believe, they puffed out their chest and said with self-righteous indignation, he shall bring those wretches to a wretched end. Well, with that answer, they were pronouncing their own judgment. Within years, that beautiful Jewish temple and the beautiful city of Jerusalem lay in ashes caused by the Roman army. I call that a wretched end. God is love. God is patient. He's slow to anger and quick to forgive. His mercies endure forever. But God is just. That means he will mete out perfect judgment in the end. So we've looked at the four characteristics of God. What is the lesson for us, personally, to take from this? As Jesus finished the parable, he asked the religious leaders, Have you never read, The stone which the builders rejected shall become the capstone? The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus was quoting from Psalms 118. Some translations say cornerstone. And in Ephesians 2.20, Jesus called the chief cornerstone. But the cornerstone is not the same as a capstone. A cornerstone is the first stone laid in construction, and all the other stones are laid in alignment to it. The keystone is the last stone that is laid, and usually in an arch you will see it like that. You have to support all the stones with wood, until that keystone is put in place. And then the pressure and the weight of that stone presses out and down and causes that arch to stand. Those arches have been standing in Jerusalem for thousands of years like that. The stone which the builders rejected was a reference to the building of Solomon's temple. It took over 30,000 workers over seven years to complete the first temple. According to 1 Kings, all the stones were quarried away from the construction site. They didn't want any hammering or any noise being made at the holy city, the holy hill where the temple was being built. <coughs> Jewish tradition says in the early days, the construction manager saw a stone being rolled into the construction site on logs. He looked it over and he didn't understand what it was doing there. It wasn't square, it wasn't rectangular, so he thought it was a mistake. He had it rolled down the hill into the Kidron Valley. Well, years later, when he was ready to finish the temple, and they were building the last arch over the entry to the temple, he looked for the capstone to go into it. He did not have it. So he sent a message to the quarry manager and said, Where is my capstone, my keystone? for the arch. The manager came to the construction site and said, I sent that to you years ago. They started looking for it, and that's where they found it, down in the valley. Brought it back up, set it in place, and it fit perfectly. It had been untouched for years, 
but it still was the completion of the temple. What a parable this is about Jesus. Rejection, rejection, rejection. But when it's found, it's the perfect fit. Jesus is a capstone that can give strength to your life, but without it, you will crumble. Because the nation of Israel rejected Jesus, God's Son, God's Stone, they fell under God's judgment. And if you insist on rejecting God's Son, God's Stone, you will face the justice as well. This stone can either be the source of your life or the cause of your suffering. Jesus said, He who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. Back when the Old West was being settled, pioneers flocked across the country to California and Oregon. In one particular spot on the eastern slopes of the Rockies, there was a large rock covered in dirt in the trail. Many wagons broke their wheels on that rock, and many people walking stumbled and fell. Finally, somebody dug up that rock and threw it into the stream right next to the trail. And it stayed there for many years. People, the stream was just a little too wide to step over, so people used it as a stepping stone. After many years, somebody built a house next or a cabin next to the stream, and he dug up that stone and put it in his house as a doorstop. The man's grandson came from New York one time. He had been studying geology, and he looked at that rock, and he discovered that in the lump of that dirt and rock was the largest gold nugget ever discovered on the eastern slope of the Rockies. It's been there for generations, and people never recognized its worth. To some, it was a stumbling stone that needed to be removed. To others, it was a stepping stone. And to others, it was just a rock. And only the grandson saw what it was really worth, a lump of pure gold. Jesus is the pure rock of gold that we have, that God has given to us. He's both the cornerstone and the keystone of our lives. Will you come to the rock today? Will you build your life on him? One day, you'll discover that Jesus will either be a stepping stone that gives you access to God, or he'll be a rock over which you'll stumble. The choice is yours. Don't let today go by without making that choice. As we sing our final hymn, this hymn, as I picked out, tells the sermon again to you. Listen to the words. I know not many men sing in this church, and you don't even look at the hymn book. But maybe today, if you'll take the hymn book out and look at the words as we sing that final hymn and what they mean to you.